So this this morning's lesson, uh, as stated in the bulletin, will be about the Trinity, the heart, the highest article of our faith, um, the truth of who God most essentially is, that forms all of our understanding of all of God's ways and works. Everything that there is to be known about God is formed by who he is, who he most essentially is. And he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this lesson, I am uh, seeking to engage your minds. Uh, It's an appropriate uh, stance because... This is the Sunday school hour. And so uh, you'll find at times there might be some technicality in the teaching. But if you're not able to fully grasp or understand the technicality, don't get frustrated. Okay, it's okay. Uh, As we're growing, you can look at little babes and uh, as they're growing to learn how to talk, the most of what they receive are impressions and they're not able to articulate. Okay. Um, and so what is important is that you hone in and pay attention. Okay. Abide in what's being said and receive the impressions. Okay. Um, I wanted to begin with a quote from a Puritan called, his name is Robert Hawker. Uh, pastor sends, out uh, his prayers usually on a weekly basis Um, here's a quote what sets the redeemed mind apart from the natural mind is that beyond and behind the benefits of what God does that mind can distinguish Who God is in himself. This is what they delight in most. They do not first see that God loves them and then sees that he is lovely, but they first see that God is lovely in himself and that Christ is excellent and glorious and their hearts are first captivated with this view. That is this view of who God is in himself before his works, before what he does. Who is he? Okay. Continuing to quote. And the exercises of their love are wont from time to time to begin here and to arise primarily from these views. What he's saying there is that we need our love for God to start there. Okay, with our view of who God is. Okay, and then consequently, continuing to quote, they see God's love and great favor toward them. Okay, and that's what we are about right now in this hour uh, on the teaching of the Holy Trinity. So, who is God most essentially? Who is God? Beyond everything else, who beyond him being creator, okay? Because before creation, there was God. Before even Redeemer, who is God? And what you know to be true about who God is will form your understanding of everything else. Everything else. Okay? And it is the intention that through this, I am engaging your mind, but the purpose for engaging the mind is to get to your heart. Okay? So that in knowing God, you delight in Him. You love Him more. Okay? So knowing God. Knowing God in Scripture, throughout Scripture, knowing God and salvation are inseparable. Okay, we just sang it. 
You are still my God and my salvation. Okay? This is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Uh, going back in the Old Testament, what are the new covenant promises? That they all shall know you. They shall know you from the least to the greatest. I will give them in heart to know me. Right? So salvation and knowledge of God go together. Why? Because God in salvation isn't giving you something other than himself. He's giving you himself. He is our salvation. And brothers, you cannot believe in what you do not know. Romans 10. How they, how shall they call upon him who they do not believe and how shall they believe on him whom they've not heard? And how they, shall they hear if they don't have preachers? And so, brethren, we can't know God unless he reveals himself to us. And question, does God reveal who he most essentially is to us? Does he? Is there a point to which we can know God and beyond there is nothing else? Behind, there's nothing more fundamental to know about God. Okay. If you will go to First John chapter 2. And verse 20. Now the Holy Spirit was sent to teach us, lead us into all things, okay? Into all truth. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Notice that John is being very specific about God there. Who is the Antichrist denying? Not God in general. He's denying the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will also abide in who? The Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he has given to us. Eternal life. And what is eternal life? According to Jesus and his prayer in John 17, this is eternal life. That they know you, God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Specifically the context, of course, he's praying to the Father. Know you, Father, and your Son whom you have sent. <clears throat> and so, God reveals himself Specifically, okay? Specifically and personally. The Trinity is the Trinity of persons. So, let's not talk abstractly about God anymore. Let us lay aside all confusion about who God specifically is. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is nothing more fundamental to say. Okay? There's nothing behind the three. There's no God behind the three. He is God. Okay? And it would be awesome to do a study right now on the Cappadocian Agreement 
and the formulation of the and development of these thoughts in Christian history. And these are some of the things that they're coming to see. And let me quote Fred Sanders. Fred Sanders wrote this book, The Deep Things of God. And this is I'm recommending this book to you now. I'll be quoting from him. And I might have one quote from Mike Reeves. And I'm recommend these have been recommended before uh, from this pulpit, I think from Pastor. Uh, let me quote from Fred Sanders from this book. The doctrine of the Trinity calls us to recognize and ponder and rejoice in the sheer reality of who God essentially is at home in the happy land of the Trinity above all worlds. To recognize this is to come face to face with the final foundation of all of God's ways and works. So, do you all think that this is important? It is utterly important for your faith. Luther, Martin Luther, who said that just the article of faith, justification, the article of faith, upon which the church stands or falls. Okay, that the doctrine of justification is the article of faith upon which the church stands and falls. Luther also stated, which is less often quoted, but that the the doctrine of the Trinity is the highest article of faith upon which every other article hangs. Okay, so I guess we could say that the doctrine of the Trinity is the article of faith upon which everything stands or falls. Heaven and earth stands or falls based on who is God. Okay? So, the burden behind this, behind this lesson is that no more abstraction. No more confusion about who is God. Let us be jealous for the name into which we have been baptized. What name have we been baptized into? The name of? That's the name into which we have been baptized. When you first became a Christian, you were baptized into that name. What is Baptist? What is baptism mean? What does it mean to be baptized? Do you all remember from Stuart's Baptist distinctives. He gave the definition of what is baptized mean. Immersed. You've been immersed into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That name. That's who God is. And so, if you will go to Proverbs chapter 30. So I hope that you're seeing right now that the Trinity is not some additional extra to our salvation, that it's the very core and foundation of all that we know and believe and all that God's word has to reveal to us. Okay, so chapter 30, verse 4. And let this be the question. Who has ascended into heaven? Or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? By this time, you should know who he's talking about. He's talking about God. Okay? Listen to this. And what is his name? And what is his son's name? If you know? That's the question. What is God's name? Who is he? Throughout redemptive history, redemptive history is from Genesis to Revelation. Okay? All that God has revealed of himself to people in time. All of his saving work and his promises from beginning to end 
Okay, that's recorded to us in Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, there's a progression of revelation. There's more and more and more and more and more revealed about who God is. So in the beginning, we do get, I am who I am, right? The Holy One. What is His name? And we get Yahweh. Is there something more specific in the progression of Revelation? And the answer is yes, when the sun comes. Okay? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? This word in the Greek is very specific, face to face with God. Okay? He was in the beginning with God. So this word is a he. When we say word, why, why is John using the word word there? Words communicate something. So what does the word of God communicate? God. Okay? So, so Jesus is the revelation of God. He is the very radiance of the glory of God in Hebrews 1 verse 3. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the glory of God. When you see me, Jesus said to Philip, you have seen the Father, and there's the name. We know God through the Son. Okay? Who is Jesus most essentially? Who is Jesus most essentially? And yes, that question is answerable. Before all things, who is Jesus? The Son. Right? Him being the image of the invisible God, being most essentially Son, who is God most essentially? Father. That's the name. So in the bulletin, the text that I provided was John 17. If you'll go there, John 17, verse 26. Uh, we're going to start in verse 24. And Jesus is pr- praying to the Father. Okay? Now, if you remember in John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? And then in verse 18, it says, The only begotten of the Father, who is at His side, the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. So there's something about God that previous to Jesus we had not known. No one knows the Father but the Son. Okay? Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. What is the name? From Proverbs 30. What is the name of the Holy One? The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding in Proverbs 9, right? Well, what is His name? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The name name that the Son comes to bring us so that we may know God is Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I and the Father are one. Okay? So what we're seeing in Jesus Christ's coming, in the Son's coming, okay, to earth, is the fellowship of the Trinity coming into earth to reveal who God is. In other words, God reveals himself in person. Okay?
The Son doesn't just come to earth. He comes to our humanity. He becomes human as the Word. The Word became flesh. Well, why? Otherwise, we wouldn't know. Human language is the language which we know. If the Word is to come down and for us to know, He must become one with us. And that's what the Son did. He became one with us so that we can enter into His knowing of the Father. He shared with us His knowledge of the Father, which He, who better other than the one who has eternally existed with the Father should make Him known. Only the Son has that privilege. And who better? And it's not just some intellectual education that we need. He comes to bring the relationship with which He had with the Father. Do you, are you starting to see how the Trinity starts to shape our salvation? The Son is sent so that we can be united with the Son. So that we could be united to what? The Father. So that the love that the Son has always had with the Father would be shared with us. Amen. Not a new love. That love. That love. Jesus said, the Father has life in Himself and has granted to the Son to have life in Himself. And in various scriptures, the Father has loved the Son, therefore has, is showing all that He is doing. The Father has loved the Son before the foundation of the world in John 17. So before creation, before all things, who is God? Father giving life and love to the Son by the Spirit. That's who God is. What does it mean to be Father? Like when the scripture, when, when Jesus is saying, He's the Father, what does that mean? It probably means that He's a Father. Okay? That, and what do fathers do? Give life. Right? Give life and love. From all eternity, God has been giving life and love to His Son. And the Son has received the Father and response, love. This is that eternal love by the Spirit. So we're seeing the shape of this relationship of the Trinity. That the Son is eternally loved, eternally begotten, meaning eternally been given life. The Father has given himself to his Son, life and love, from all eternity. In other words, the Son has always been coming forth from the Father. That's true. That's historical Christianity. The eternal begottenness of the Son. Okay? Always coming forth from the Father. And the Spirit always has proceeded from the Father and the Son. No wonder that the Son is sent. When the Son is sent into the world, it's not something new in God. He's always been coming forth from the Father. When the Spirit is sent into the world on mission... That's not something new. He's always been proceeding forth from the Father. Micah 5, his goings forth are from ancient of days. And this has some uh, implications about God's attributes that I want to get to. But hone in on the fact that God is essentially life-giving and loving. Always going forth. In the Cappadocian Agreement, which is historical Christian development of the understanding, the formal understanding, it was always understood, the formal understanding of 
the Trinity. And in that, they've come to understand that God finds his his essence in ecstasis, which means in going out. Okay? God has always been going forth. Okay? Therefore, he's not greedy. He has no need. When we talk about self-sufficiency in God, it doesn't mean that he's stingy, that he's always trying to get from you. No. His self-sufficiency actually means ase, which is aseity. Ase means from self, meaning he's, he's giving of himself. Well, that's no wonder because he's always been giving himself to his son. This is the glory of God. He really is the fountain that the word speaks of and that we sing about. And salvation really is all of grace because of who God is. There's a point in time that I became a father. Me. Right? Whenever Elena was born. There was never a time in which the Father, which is who He essentially is, became Father. That's who He is. This shapes everything. Let this blow up all the idols. Creation wasn't the first time that the Father gave life. Redemption isn't the first time that God loved. He's always had his son. So then, creation and salvation are all about this spreading of that life and love with which God has always been. God created the world not to destroy it. But in creation, which is formed by our understanding of who God is, what do we see in creation? And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. What was not good? That man was alone. He needs somebody. Well, why wasn't that good? Because I didn't reflect the trinity of love and relationship. Being father is intrinsic to who God is. It's the glory of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, I want, and this might be where there might be some technicality that may go over the head, but just hone in, okay? Let us, with this understanding of who God is, go into the attributes of God, okay? It is often the case that I'll hear was a preacher or somebody talking about God and they're talking about the glory of God and who he most essentially is and then what do they say? They talk about the attributes. Okay? There's something more fundamental than the attributes. There is. Let me uh, quote from John Calvin. And then after the quote... I'm going to quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is commenting on John Calvin's quote. Okay? There is no other God who exists, much less who is worth talking about, than the Father who is known in His Son, by His Spirit, according to His Word. That's John Calvin's quote. Now here's Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on that quote. In other words, we cannot just talk about the divine being with certain ideal attributes and then somehow add the Trinity and Jesus Christ to the understanding of the divine being. No, we must come to the Father and the Son 
by the Spirit. There's no other way to know God except in the Son. So again, let's blow up the abstract God. Let's not talk about God in general. Because God has specifically made himself known, the God that we love personally, right? God is not a conglomerate of attributes. When you see God as Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity forms our understanding of the attributes. In fact, you know what? Muslims talk about the attributes of God. So what's different? Well, the flavor of those attributes are quite different because they're not Trinitarian. And therefore, you, although you might feel like you're exalting God, like he is sovereign, ruler, all powerful, the Muslims believe that. But they worship an idol. Okay? Israel was worshiping a golden calf, a horned golden idol, horned power, gold, riches. And you know what they named that, gold, that golden calf? Yahweh. So we can feel like we're exalting God by talking about his majesty and power. But yet still, if we're not distinctly Trinitarian, have a different God. So this is why Gregory of Nazianzus, which was a Cappadocian father, he was somebody that was extremely helpful in the development of the doctrine of the Trinity back in the patriarchs. You know what he said? He was fed up with abstraction and generalizations about God. And he just said, when I say God, I mean Trinity. He was jealous for the name of God. He was jealous. And that's what we should be. Okay. What comes first is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The attributes of God... Tell us the kind of God that he is. Okay? The, the persons are who? The attributes, what is, what is this God like? What is his nature? Okay? One is more inner to the life of God than the other. Attributes are coming out, flow out of God's persons. Okay? So, now let's give some examples of what does it mean to have Trinitarian thoughts about the attributes of God. Self-sufficiency we examine. Ase, from self, aseity. God's self-sufficiency meaning is not mean that he's off to himself. It means that he's the fountain overflowing and that he has no need. He has no need. So, a Trinitarian view of God's self-sufficiency is that he is utterly giving of himself. Immutability. God's immutability doesn't mean that he is immobile. Okay? Has God done anything new? Has he? Yes, he created Yeah, he created. What about judgment? Judgment is new. That's new. And so immutability doesn't mean that God doesn't go forth. He's always been going forth from eternity. God's immutability means that his character never changes. That his love never changes. The Persons of God never change. Okay, what about God's power? 
I've heard talk about God's power as if that's who he essentially is, raw power and force. Islam has a similar understanding of God, of their God's power. And therefore, they say things like good comes out of God or that evil comes out of God just as much as good does. Because he's able to do everything. But a Trinitarian view of God's power is that he's able to do what he most pleases. And what is it that he most pleases? Give life and love. Protect life and love. And so God's... Whenever you think about a person's ability, okay, like a scientist or a doctor, that's a title based on their ability, their skill set, right? Their ability is determined by their character, okay? So there's something more inner to the life of that person than their ability. Their ability is dictated by the person, their character, okay? And so God's ability is dictated by his personhood, Okay. What about his incomprehensibility? Incomprehensibility means that we will not exhaust the riches of the knowledge of God. We will not know everything that there is to know about the persons of the Trinity. We won't. But listen to Fred Sanders here. The Christian experience of salvation is an encounter with the true God as he truly exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We certainly do not know everything about the persons of the Trinity, but what we do know extends all the way into who God is internally, eternally, and essentially. In other words, everything that there is to be, that could be known of God, uh, we know something of. In other words, we know who God is through and through, most essentially, internally, and eternally. Okay? In other words, we've, God has revealed Himself in such a way that there's nothing else beyond Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So an understanding of incomprehensibility is not that we can't know God for who He most essentially is, but that the riches of this knowledge cannot be grasped. Okay. What about God's wrath? as an attribute to under be understood in a trinitarian way i have a lot of quotes here because i know that uh this might be surprising but let's think again who is god internally eternally and essentially who was god before creation before the fall before all things who is god Father, Son, and Spirit. Father loving eternally His Son by the Spirit. Was there any anger in God? Was there any holy frustration? No, absolutely not. Wrath exists where sin exists. Where there is no sin, there is no wrath. Okay? Therefore, is the wrath of God an essential attribute? No. It's not. It's not an essential attribute of God. Because if God's wrath was an essential attribute, he would need sin to exist in order to be who he is. And God does not need. That's a creature word. Therefore, this this gives rise to delight and desire in the heart when we examine who is God essentially. 
And guess what? That flows into our understanding of creation. Who are we? Made in the image of God. Our understanding of the law of God. Our understanding of sin. Our understanding of salvation. Everything. And I'm not, I don't have time to give all these quotes because I was afraid that there might be some apprehension to me saying that God's wrath is not an essential attribute. And I'm not going to quote all these. I may send out an email. But here are a list of theologians that we, from like the bulletin and from sermons, have quoted from that agree with that statement, that God's wrath is not an essential attribute. Marcus Peter Johnson, D.A. Carson, Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, Tertullian, Michael Reeves, Sinclair Ferguson, Thomas Goodwin. And I'm sure the list could go on, but I don't have any concrete. All I have as far as concrete uh, reference is from these names. Okay? If that helps the apprehension. Uh, And so, therefore, God is not essentially creator. Why would God not be essentially creator? Let's, let's really hone in on the logic here so that our minds can process this. Why would not, why would God not be essentially creator? Because he would need Good. Absolutely. So, before creation was, God was. Right? If God was essentially creator, then he would need creation to exist in order for him to be who he is. Okay? What about, John mentioned lawgiver. Why would God not be essentially lawgiver? Or ruler? Because he would need subjects to be under his rule in order for him to be who he is. And you can say the same thing about Redeemer. There was a time before God was a Redeemer. And just as with judgment, as we saw with the wrath of God. Okay. So how does this form an understanding of creation? Creating, creation was good. Not a mixture of evil and good. No. Created and it was good. Created and it was good. He created and it was good. In other words, there's this generosity seen in creation. That, of course, no surprise, because God has always been given life. Okay? This also forms our understanding of how God is lawgiver. Because God is lawgiver. God gives laws to protect the good in which he created. Don't murder. Why? Why can't I murder? Because God loves life, that which is good. And he wants us to be like him and image him in giving life, not taking life, not being graspy, not being inward. That's actually where you find yourself to be inward, meaning taking, 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 is when you're following an idol who is needy, not like the Trinity. How does this help us in our views of sin? Well, how should we view sin? Well, if God is essentially lawgiver what might sin be essentially okay god, if god was not father son and holy spirit and god was essentially ruler okay essentially lawgiver then what is sin yeah it's just breaking law it's just not doing what he says to do okay that's it and so it's a super, if I view God as essentially ruler, then I have a superficial view of God's law and of sin. Okay? But whenever I see Him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
it forms my under, understanding of lawgiver and sin. Okay? What is sin then? If God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It's not loving. Yeah. Which is, that's an outflow, outcome of, of being not loving. Is destroying life. Okay? Sin is essentially not loving. Jesus Christ gives us a sum of the whole law. What is it? Thou shalt love. Well, why is it that? Because of who God is. You see? And so this is why I believe that John, this John, uh, has been honing in on the love of God and the supremacy of that love. Why? Because that is who God essentially is. Okay. A few weeks ago, in a Wednesday night, John had uh, quoted from First John, where it states, God is love. In fact, it says it twice in First John. God is love. Okay. How is that different from saying that God is good and that God is righteous? That God is holy. Just scripturally speaking, there is a distinction by the word usage in scripture. What John is doing is he's making what is normally known as a verb, a noun. It's not an adjective. Okay? Like if I say God is good, well that's, that's an adjective. Right? But if I say God is love, that's not saying that God is lovely. It's not an adjective. So when we come across those places in scriptures, which there's three, God is love, God is light, God is spirit. We are to hone in and pay attention to what is this saying? And it's saying, who is God Independent of everything else, who is God? And you know what? God is good. God is goodness. But what's revealed to us in Scripture, the wording revealed to us in Scripture, God is love. Okay? And so that, uh, that I believe is what the distinction that John was trying to make, um, Okay. So in eternity, who is God? Father, Son, Holy Spirit forms everything that God wants us to know and believe. And this is the glory that Jesus Christ has come to reveal to us. You've seen Him. You've seen the Father. There's no other way to know God except in the Son. The way, the truth, and life. So if we are to name God, let's not name him from his works only, but let us name him by the Son and call him Father. Okay? This is what Athanasius said to Arius. I don't know, I wanted to give this example. We may have some time. Arius was a heretic that denied the Trinity, that said that the Son came into existence, that he wasn't always with the Father, but that the Son is the first one that was made. Right? And when that happens, you know what happens. Everything else is misshapen. And... Uh, Athanasius in fact Arius the most essential name that God had alright you ready for it unoriginate that was the name by which God must be signified that was the most essential thing that you could why because he named him from his works alone okay and so he was trying to big God up, like, yeah, Father, Son, uh, unoriginate. 
He was trying to glorify God. He was wrong. Absolutely wrong. And when we try to do that, when we go around the sun and try to name God, we get it wrong. Like Arius. And so Athanasius said, quote, It is better to name God through the Son and call him Father than to name him from his works and call him unoriginate. So, Athanasius, jealous for the name of God, wrote the Athanasian Creed, which says this, Whoever shall be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the universal faith. It says Catholic there. I don't want there to be misunderstanding. It's not talking about Roman Catholicism. Which faith, unless everyone do keep whole and undefiled, unlike Arius, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. In other words, what he's about to say is life or death. Eternity is in the balance. So, what is the Catholic faith? What is the universal faith that he's talking about here? And the universal faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. And then he goes on explaining about the persons of the Trinity. It really matters that much. And in Athanasius' experience, he knew it because there was a threat. And we may not feel that threat, Right? Because we're, we've always kind of been Trinitarian. We need to really see, understand the significance of the doctrine of the Trinity. What comes into your mind when you think about God? The content matters about everything, about the way that you view salvation. No, if you are essentially thinking about a God of attributes, but you don't have persons, you don't have a name, you will soon fall into air. And so I hope that uh, some of these thoughts will be impactful, maybe even provoke a few of us to read these books. Uh, the lighting in the Trinity and the deep things of God. But I hope that also the effect of a lesson like this would be, I don't want there to be any other God than this God. This is the God that is altogether lovely, altogether desirable, altogether to be delighted in. There is no other God. Let's pray. Father, Father,